0: Well, good morning, church. It's great to have you all here again. Keeping your joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner. And, and the topic this morning is how our lives are to magnify Christ in this world. And the striking thing about this text is Paul will very specifically tell us how our lives are to magnify Christ. Most of us think, well, it's just following Jesus and being as good a Christian as you can be, and that's how we're going to glorify God in this world. And Paul has different things and very specific things addressed to Christian people about how our lives are to magnify Christ. So let's study this together. Philippians 1, I want to look at verses 12 through 18. Paul writes, and he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, he's in, a, he's in prison as he writes this letter, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. We'll talk about that in a minute. 14." And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, that's strange, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, building their own little kingdoms, contrary to Paul. But others from goodwill. 16. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former, those who do it out of rivalry and envy, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So how's Paul going to react to all this? What then? Verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense, or in truth, that seems strange for Paul to say, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I tell you where I want to start looking. I want to look at the way this text opens with five words that roll off our tongue so quickly we don't even think of them as part of the meaning of the text. He says, the first five words of verse 12, I want you to know. I want you to know. So so the Philippian believers in the church at Philippi, they contemplate Paul's circumstances in prison, and they're moved to prayer. We know that. He talks about that. They're compassionate about Paul and his suffering in prison. They love Paul. They're concerned about his condition. And then... Paul tells them something that they might be missing, something he wants them to know, verse 12. I take that, that there's, that there's something happening in Paul's heart and mind that isn't as obvious as they might think, but might be really important to take note of and learn from. And so Paul is about to say some things that aren't quickly self, uh, self-evident to these believers in Philippi. So that's what today's teaching is about, what we need to know. And and we need to know this because it teaches us how Jesus is magnified in all of the circumstances of our lives. And I would submit to you there's just nothing we need to know more than we need to know that. So let's jump right into it. Point number one, Paul wants the Philippian Christians to know that he doesn't evaluate his life by the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of his circumstances. I get that in that 12th verse where he says I want you to know brothers that that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That what has happened to me and how it served to advance the, gospel. The, the striking feature, I think, of Paul's response to their questions and their concerns about his welfare, the striking thing is he makes almost no direct reference whatsoever to what actually is happening to him. I mean, he makes passing remarks. He'll talk about it a bit later. But as he launches into his response about what's happening to him, he begins by talking about the gospel. Paul we're worried about you. Paul we fear for your life. Paul you're not a young man anymore. What's happening? Please Paul let us know. Well let me tell you what's happening. The gospel is being advanced, Paul says. That's what's happening. Could this be what could this be what Paul means when he's constantly saying He is in Christ Jesus. Is is this what Paul means when he says, for me to live is Christ? So it's not just religious blithering or a poetic kind of a saying, but it has actual substance to it. Is this what Paul means when he begins this very letter to Philippi, calling himself a slave of Jesus Christ? You see, it seems that for Paul, these were not just, um, idle, thoughtless, roll-off-the-tongue religious labels. He, he had considered these words. He knew that he meant something when he said, for me to live is Christ. That, that those words were the most accurate description he could come up with for the way he lived his life day by day. Paul didn't know how to separate describing his life from the gospel. He couldn't picture describing his life and what's happening in his life without talking about the gospel. True, he says certain things had happened to him. That's in the text. But he just gives them glancing attention. That 12th verse, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me? That's it. That's all he says. And in this particular text, he doesn't even say what that was. If you want to know how it is with him, well, the only way he can paint that for you is to talk about the advance of the gospel. And Paul wants the Philippian believers to see this in his response. Here's what I want you to know. Verse 12, those five words. Here's what I want you to know. This is how the life of Christ manifests itself. There's really no other measuring stick for how it's going with me than how it is with Christ's kingdom and the gospel. This is really big. There is a talked about love for Christ. There is certainly a sung about love for Christ. And then there is a lived love for Christ. Paul has sacrificed his life for Jesus Christ and the gospel. For Paul to live was Christ. I mean, we all say the same thing, but we might not always mean the same thing. It isn't just I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven when I die. That's not all that Paul means. Paul meant that when you ask him how it is with his life, He can only say, even though he may be scraping his sores in a moldy prison cell, all he can say is, well, the gospel is advancing. That's how it is with me. It's a big picture, Christian. This is Paul's heart. Now, what he's going to do next is he's going to unpack some details. So, he's going to tell us two ways that the gospel was advancing through his circumstances. In other words, Paul's going to get, he's going to get very specific talking about how our lives are to magnify Christ in this world. Two ways the gospel was advancing through Paul's imprisonment. Point number two. Christ was magnified and the gospel was advanced when Paul chose suffering for the kingdom that could have been avoided. I get that in that 13th verse, Philippians 1, 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is, it's for Christ. And that's, that's what had become known. In other words, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't actually have to be in prison he's committed no real crime <clears throat> the evident cause of his chains is is his commitment to and the proclamation of Christ so those are the important words my imprisonment is is for Christ in other words people have noticed the reason for paul 's imprisonment uh, rather than complain and become bitter and react like probably the rest of the prisoners usually did, Paul uses his cell as this lampstand for the light. He says, the guards have heard the gospel of Christ from Paul's lips. In fact, the gospel has reached places it had not been before. I mean, think about it. How else does the gospel reach the inside of a Roman imperial prison except through a passionately committed to Christ, prisoner. So, this is the point to which Paul's mind fastens. Paul is working out the logic of God's purpose in his imprisonment. So, in other words, the effect of Paul's imprisonment is much greater than Rome's intention in Paul's imprisonment. Paul does what we all must constantly do, and what is never easy in a lot of circumstances he he factors he factors the purpose of God and the glory of the gospel into his situation so so as people see Paul's commitment to Christ and they observe that he chooses chains over renouncing Christ then the only conclusion they can draw is Christ must be exceedingly precious to Paul. That's what they see. I mean, seriously, what would make a Roman citizen stay in prison when he didn't have to? It was only his commitment to the gospel that held Paul in chains, and everyone around Paul was shocked by Paul's priorities. It struck them. I think this is always the case you know people people notice what you prize, not just what you praise they, they, they examine what do you give most of your time to they listen to your most passionate topic of conversation perhaps most of all they, they notice they notice they evaluate what what you refuse to be budged from no matter what they're enticed by they enti- they're enticed by what pumps the most joy into your life maybe that's it they're constantly looking to see what is it in all of your circumstances what is it that makes your heart sing still boy i need to i need to search my heart this sunday You need to search yours. What is there about my ordinary daily life that makes people ask questions about Jesus Christ? You can't fake this. It's not an I love bumper Jesus sticker or a what would Jesus do bracelet. Those things are all over the place. They're common. No, what, what, what people notice is the treasure of my heart. The one thing I cannot live without. What they notice is the person who who reveals two people at the same time because they live in Christ, and Christ lives in them. The time this reality becomes most refined, of course, most vivid, is, is what makes your heart sing when they can't see any external reason for the song. Paul's imprisonment. That's what we're talking about here. Paul's imprisonment made Jesus look precious because Paul seemed more pleased with the advance of the gospel than he was upset about the loss of everything else. He wouldn't avoid the prison by abandoning Christ, so obviously Christ must be exceedingly precious. I I said, I said there were two ways in which Paul's imprisonment advanced the gospel. The first way was the gospel was reaching new ears. That's what we've been looking at. It was reaching the Roman guard and the fellow prisoners. This isn't just a guess. We know this is the case because of the way Paul wraps up this letter to the Philippians. You You can look at it for yourself. Philippians 4, 21 and 22 Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. Look at 22. And the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Wow. Caesar's household. I wonder how the gospel got there. So now we're going to look at a second way. I said there were two. A second way that Paul's imprisonment advanced the gospel. This is point number three. Seeing Paul's sacrifice for the gospel gave courage to other Christians to boldly proclaim Christ, even in the face of danger and persecution. I see this in 14. Most of the brothers, having become more confident, some of the texts say bold, more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are, here it is, much more bold to speak the word without fear. The verse is astounding. I mean, not only did the gospel reach fresh ears through Paul's imprisonment, it also opened fresh mouths. Not only were the unevangelized reached, but witnesses and proclaimers were made more bold and confident. It's a great text. I mean, here's what we see. Someone has to be first to stand up for Christ around against the mentality of the pack. Some serious, unintimidated Christian has to be a pace setter. And here's the thing. You are not the only one who benefits from your open commitment to Christ and the gospel. That, that perhaps, without you even being aware of it, By seeing your boldness, other Christians will pick up the pace in sharing Christ. It's a wonderful truth. I mean, I may or may not do the best job ever in my little service to Jesus Christ. I'm sure there are others who will teach better, learn more, reach more of the unsaved. We're all in that boat. But here's the thing, whatever I lack in gift, or talent. If some other Christian moves on to greatness and ministry that I might never reach, but they're going to move on because they were kicked in the pants a little bit by my boldness for Christ in my own little way, then I will be rewarded not only on the basis of my talents, but theirs as well. Please note that this lesson is drawn right out of the text. I'm not making it up. Paul didn't measure the success of his ministry in Philippi, just by what he was doing in Philippi. Paul evaluated his ministry by the number of other people who were propelled into ministry in other places by what they saw of his commitment to Christ while he was in prison. It snowballs. So so we're to get the big picture. I want to say to you, That there is, Cedarview, there is more going on in your ordinary walk for Jesus than you can imagine if you're faithful to Christ. Faithfulness, especially in the face of difficult circumstances and daily opposition, faithfulness spawns courage in others that you may only hear about when Jesus comes again. Prove to someone what God can do with a very ordinary person. This gives Christ great glory. Let, let me just sit on this for just a bit longer, okay? Because I think it helps answer some tricky theological questions that people ask. First, what about, what about people? Faces come to mind. they probably come to yours too. What about people who seem almost called upon to deal with more hardships than most others face. Why does that happen? And and could part of the answer be that God wants to prove his keeping power to others by the way he keeps your life strong through trial? Could it be that God knows others will find it easier to treasure him through trials, unexplainable difficult trials, Because they've come to believe maybe he can keep them because they've already seen him keeping you. Your commitment to joyful sacrifice for Christ can give courage to people you will never meet. Treasure that. Point number four. For the sake of your joy, be unbending in your defense of gospel truth but always leave people's motives with the Lord. I get that in, in Philippians 1, 15 through 18, because you have this contrast here. Some indeed preach Christ. So this is what they're all doing. They're all preaching Christ. Some are doing it from envy and rivalry. Others from goodwill. What are we going to do about that? The latter do it out of love. That's those people. Knowing I am put here for a defense of the gospel. The former, that's those people, proclaim Christ out of rivalry. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Okay, so what are we going to do about this? How are we going to react? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, Christ is proclaimed. In that I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I've made up my mind, so this isn't just an initial response. It's going to be an ongoing response. I'm not going to change my mind here. Now, what gave Paul's imprisonment power to reach the lost was his joy in Jesus Christ, especially when he had lost everything else. And and what gave other Christians courage from Paul's imprisonment was his willingness to suffer for the gospel. Okay, that's what we've studied so far. And then something important happens in verses 15 through 18, explaining how Paul resisted and Paul defeated one of the greatest joy killers in the Christian life. That's what you're seeing in 15 to 18. How did Paul deal with one of the greatest joy killers in the Christian life? And in essence, he kept his joy centered in the gospel rather than his own reputation or personal concern. So so he kept his joy by considering only how the actions of others affected the gospel. He didn't seem to dwell very long on how the actions of others affected him. Let me say that again. He spent his time considering how the actions of others affected the gospel. He didn't spend a lot of time considering how the actions of others affected him personally. And, and you just have to, all of us, you just have to say, wait a minute, let's pause we need to carefully separate what they do say and what these verses don't say. Because it's easy to misunderstand here. Paul rejoiced, even if these people proclaim the truth about Christ from very corrupt hearts. He says that. He's very clear that these people weren't sincere. Verse 17 says they proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, and here was their intent. They wanted to afflict Paul, 17. That's what he says. They were probably jealous of the success Paul's ministry had had in Rome, and they wanted people to turn against him while he was shut up in prison. That way they could build up their own ministries and their own reputations. So, they were probably proclaiming Christ, maybe at the same time, slandering Paul, saying untrue things about Paul, belittling Paul. And so, Paul hears about this. Picture this Paul hears about all this going on while he's in prison, and he can't do a thing about it. And if you're not very careful and very spiritual, Something like that can destroy your soul. But Paul isn't worried about any of that because these people are, at least in Paul's words, still proclaiming Christ. He says they're proclaiming Christ. He says it in verse 17 and he says it in verse 18. What you won't find in these verses, nor in any other verses in the New Testament, and this is the point that, the distinction that you need to make, what you won't find in these verses or any other verses in your New Testament, you won't find any love or joy in the heart of Paul for people who spread a different gospel. These people weren't doing that. They were, they were trying to mess up Paul, but they were proclaiming Christ. Paul says, that's fine. But what isn't fine is when people come, even very good people, moral people, polite people, when they come with a different message, Paul won't put up with that for a second. You'll see that in verses like these, Galatians 1, 8, and 9. But even if we are an angel from heaven, I've read those all my life too quickly. If there's ever a way that Paul could show you don't accept the message from someone just because they're a very good person. That doesn't make the message true. He's not talking about a demon here, an angel from hell. He's talking about an angel that actually does come from heaven. Think about it. A real angel from the throne of God comes down and gives you a different gospel. Let him be accursed. Wow. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel Contrary to the one you received let him be accursed. Let me show you another text. 2 Corinthians 11:4 and then 13 to 15. But if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted you put up with it readily enough. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So this is Paul's standard response to people who preach another gospel. They may be sincere. They may be the most wonderful, tolerant, benevolent, compassionate, nice people you will ever meet. If what they're delivering is contrary to the gospel, Paul says, you don't have anything to do with it. But the flip side of our text today is Paul will treasure, Paul will treasure any true presentation of the gospel, regardless of the motives of the one presenting it. His heart is so passionate about Christ, to magnify Christ in this world. His heart is so passionate about Christ and so removed from self-interest that his joy can't be diluted by what other people think of him or what other people do to him, as long as Christ is proclaimed, Paul says, because, of course, for me to live is Christ. And I would just submit to you, you can't do much to hurt a church like that. You can't do much to hurt a Christian like that. Let's keep remembering how to glorify Christ in this world in the middle of our circumstances. Let's pray. It's a great text. We all sing great hymns and worship songs about God being glorified and Christ being lifted up. And the truth be told, that has a lot to do with our own attitudes, our own pride, our own love for the gospel. And so, please, Lord, never let those become pious-sounding words that roll off our lips too lightly. I can't lift up Jesus and lift up Don Horbin at the same time. And so we center our love and our devotion on you until you come again.